Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 130, recorded on November 21st of 2020, the Photo Geekery Show, where I'm, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, for the last three years, you've all entertained, uh, or I've entertained you all, I suppose, by just talking photo geek stuff uh, for about an hour or so, and you haven't complained, so I keep doing it until you complain. And we're even switching it up this week and recording this live. Uh, and helping me with all the behind-the-scenes magic on uh, putting all the puzzle pieces together for live streaming is a, uh, I'm going to say a veteran of doing that with his podcast, Behind the Shot, and the uh, Behind the Shot Critique Show that we just wrapped up doing. Steve Brazel is pulling the strings today in the co-host seat. Steve, thank you so much for making this happen. I appreciate your your having me on and doing this, and I had a blast. And some of the people are in the chat, actually, that were just in the critique show that we did over on my YouTube channel, Behind the Shot. And uh, I have been telling Don Komarechka that he needed to stream this show because uh, he records it live all the time, audio only. But I've been telling you forever, you need to stream this to YouTube. I'm so excited that you're doing this. Well, and I wouldn't have been able to do it without your help, without your push to see how easy it is and and to you know, have somebody that can behind the scenes fix a problem while I might be talking and, and making that happen. So who knows if we'll do it again, or I, I think that we will, but maybe not every episode at least to start. But hey, here we are now. And Steve, how have you been? I have been really, really good. I have just been, you know, it's funny. A lot of people are not super happy with, with the COVID type thing. But for me, my wife retired about a year ago, almost a year ago. And so I'm home and able to spend time with her and, and have some fun. And I'm doing more podcasting, which I love. Um, most of my daily grind of IT stuff I can do remotely, which makes it easy. Um, so I'm just having fun between between the normal shows and the critique shows. And, and the, the, the show I just released on Thursday uh, I was talking to Terrell actually online about it. The show I just released on Thursday just was so special to me. So tell me about that. So I got a phone, I got a text message from a buddy of mine, uh, Scott Heath, who does some PR stuff. He owns a PR company. And he said, are you interested in having a Navy SEAL on behind the shot? And I went, well, first of all, yes, I would love to have a Navy SEAL on behind the shot. But of course, it depends on the photography in the end, because my podcast is all about dissecting a photo. So you know, where's the guy's website? Well, he's got a new book out called Uncommon Grit. Um, take a look at some of the pictures and see. Within like 10 seconds of going to his website, it was like, yes, please, please come on the show. The publisher sent me the book. It's sitting on the shelf here behind me. It is one of the most amazing photography books I've ever seen. It is a an unprecedented look at something usually secret. There's been documentaries on SEAL training, on U.S. Navy SEAL training, not SEAL, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Not yeah, SeaWorld I, I, SEALs, U.S. <laughs> Navy SEALs. Um, there's been documentaries on them, but they show ringing the bell and they so, show some stuff, but they haven't really shown the intensity of SEAL training. This entire book is behind the scene photos of SEALs, U.S. Navy SEAL training. And it's insane. And the guy is an amazing photographer. His name is Na Darren McBurnett. And uh, you uh, and you can find that at um, uh, BehindTheShot.tv, um, mm -hmm. as well as all of the wonderful previous episodes. Um, you've got some nice varied guests. It, it does tend a little bit towards your areas of interest, and, and I understand that. Um, but I've been on there a number of times, and uh, you've had so many great photographers, from people that are just into tech, like Andy Anotko, to people that are Navy SEALs, uh, to people that are technical masterminds uh, of their craft. So thank you for what you do there, Steve. Thank and, you. Um, 
And, and I will say there's one thing did happen that I think you'd find interesting. I just had a very well-known skateboard photographer on. Uh, Atiba is his name. And he's a new Canon Explorer of Light. And we went through the normal process picking photos. And I picked a picture I loved. And the feedback on the episode has been killer. But I had somebody leave a comment on YouTube saying, I'm surprised you picked this picture because Atiba's got such phenomenal skateboard shots that a lot of skateboarders would be interested in seeing, not this one. And that was an interesting thing when you say, you know, areas of interest. I thought I was picking a shot that really represented him, and but a serious skateboard fan didn't. It's it's tough. It is tough. It is tough. And, you know, it's interesting because I, uh, you know, to, to kind of get into our first sort of preamble story, um, I, uh, I, I get called the snowflake guy, the snowflake photographer I'm known for. It. Heck, I, I even have my work on, on Canadian currency in a number of different forms. And so I'm very honored uh, about that. So a number of people have sent me uh, a link to uh, articles in the last week or so. I found one on DP Review, but it's pretty well everywhere. Um, snowflake photographer captures the highest resolution snowflake photos in the world. Um, and this is uh, photos by Nathan Merhervold. Um, if I'm probably mispronouncing the last name, but that's okay. Um, uh, I have an equally impronounceable last name. So <laughs> anyhow, um, you know, he talks about a lot of the fun stuff that I do with snowflake photography. And it's great that there are other snowflake photographers out there. He is, uh, you know, a very well known and, and very sought after photographer who has been creating these images. And um, he was been taking them with a 100 megapixel medium format, I believe a phase one camera, which is expensive and so on. And I wanted to bring this up, um, partly because, um, Number one, resolution is not the resolution of the camera. It's the resolution of what the lens and the subject can dictate. And so diffraction and other things come into play. And so resolution is a really relative thing. However, I uh, I actually own the, uh, the title to this. Um, last year, I experimented with my Lumix S1R photographing snowflakes in the wild. And I was just doing some test shots in the high resolution mode. Uh, and I couldn't even find those test shots. But what I'm going to do here live is I am going to take a 187 megapixel image of a snowflake here in my studio. In real time. In real time. And I'm going to give everybody the raw file. And I'm going to make that image in the public domain. Because one of the things that I don't really like about uh, what that Nathan's uh, process is, and I understand it, I just don't agree with it, um, is that, you know, he's, in order to prove it's 100 megapixel images, you'd have to show a full res file. But he doesn't, of course, because he sells prints of it. And, and I understand that. Um, but if you're going to make a claim of something, you know, the, the proof has to be in the pudding. Uh, you have to actually show in at least one instance that it is uh, th that it is possible. So what I've got here, it might be hard to see on my camera, but I, I, I have uh, my S1R and I have a snowflake preserved on a microscope slide and I have a Lytra torch and I'm going to switch to that camera right now so that we can see that. And, and, and bear with me, folks that are listening to just the audio. This is a reason why we can do this in video. So there's a snowflake uh, and it's just the background is whatever is behind it. But I, I'm going to light this uh, so that I can get some light on that, maybe adjust the angles of it slightly. 
And so, by the way, to preserve a snowflake on a uh, on a microscope slide, you can use superglue. Uh, the active ingredient in uh, superglue is cyanoacrylate. And, uh, and that will freeze at around minus 20 degrees Celsius, but it'll be liquid before then. And so you have the ability to, uh, uh, to you know, encase a snowflake and then let it cure. Uh, and then you have a snowflake fossil, which is what this is. Uh, not using cyan- cyanoacrylate, but rather uh, using a 1% solution of, uh, of ethylene dichloride, uh, of um, uh, polyvinyl acetal resin uh, suspended in ethylene dichloride. And, uh, and so that's commonly called Formvar. It's used with electron microscopy and a lot of other things. And, and that doesn't freeze until minus 40 and it cures faster. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to, uh, hopefully it'll still keep the high resolution mode active. I might have to run through my menu and... Uh, and start it there. And, and while you're doing this, uh, there's a question in the chat. What aperture? I just lost your picture. Yeah, because it's taking the picture. Oh, gotcha. Okay. What yeah. aperture do you use the most and what do you recommend? Uh, well, for, for the higher your magnification, the uh, the, the more you're going to uh, – you're, you're going to have to step back on that aperture. So in, in this case, when you're seeing this, I'm at uh, just past two to one magnification, filling the frame oh, with a snowflake because this is a giant snowflake. Um, and uh, so at that point, I might set my aperture to f5.6 because that will actually translate closer to f16 in effective aperture. And I don't want to get into the whole minutia about that. I'm writing a book on that stuff. Um, but that image has been taken now. Uh, and I'm going to switch back uh, to my, my main camera and adjust the brightness on it. Uh, but that, that, that's our preamble. So I have just proven uh, that uh, I am the holder of the highest resolution snowflake photograph ever made. And uh, that, that was my uh, hold my beer moment. So Okay. So which, which you <laughs> mentioned on Twitter, you said there's going to be a hold my beer moment. There's one thing that, that he mentioned in the article, uh, the, the photographer, Nathan uh, Mirvold, I'm guessing is how it's pronounced again. He said the best flakes, uh, the the best snowflake photography is one that's between minus 15 and minus 20 Fahrenheit, which would be minus 26 to minus 29 centigrade. Does that sound about right? No, it's not right at all. Uh, In fact, probably like the biggest snowflakes, the one that I just uh, photographed an image of, uh, they tend to fall at around minus 15 degrees Celsius, but that's minus 15 in the sky, not on the ground. Uh, And so there's usually a temperature delta there and the temperatures would likely be at around, let's say, minus 10, minus 8 to minus 12 is kind of the, uh, the good sweet spot if you're looking for the biggest snowflakes. But some of my favorite ones are the smallest ones, um, and especially right near the uh, the, the, the freezing point, uh, say like minus four on the ground, maybe minus three, um, right. you'll get some beautiful exotic shapes. And sometimes if you get a temp- uh, temperature inversion where the, the clouds above are actually warmer than the ground, um, then the snowflakes falling uh, will have started falling at just uh, above the freezing point and they stay intact all the way to the bottom. And sometimes those exotic ones are the most beautiful, um, uh, needles and arrowhead crystals and all sorts of strangeness, uh, I find to be quite, uh, alluring. So, um, yes, uh, Nathan uses a technique, uh, that has been known for well over a century. And I think that, uh, better photographers using the same technique could easily be listed as well. Ken Liebrecht for sure. He, he's written books on it and he's written the foreword to my first book on the topic. Um, not to s- d- diminish the beauty of his work. I, I do not, they're beautiful images. Um, but, 
to make claims of the highest resolution snowflake photos, well, he didn't ask me if I had done it better. Um, and well, and, and I will say they live. are different than your images, though. Like they your are. images tend to be, and you and I have discussed this when when you were on behind the shop before. But your images tend to be taken at an angle. These are straight down. And and so in the setup that I just did, it was using uh, transmitted light the same as his. I wasn't coloring the light in this quick right. little example, uh, but it wouldn't take me a lot of effort to put colors on flashes and uh, and start to uh, to modify that in any meaningful way. And so uh, I am actively as as we're speaking, I'm going to WeTransfer uh, right now, and I am putting that image um, into uh, into the the bucket here, and the link will be in the chat as well as in the show notes. At, uh, at photogeekweekly.com, where everybody can see uh, the highest resolution photograph of a snowflake. Yes, it's technically a fossil, but if it was snowing outside and you really wanted me to run off for 10 minutes, I could go and do it in the field too. So there you go. I, I don't want to, uh, I, I just, I don't like claims of things that uh, aren't fully thought out. And, uh, and so there you have it, Steve. Uh, I have, I've completed my preamble. Okay. All right. So let's. What do we got for stories? Well, you know, this is one that has come up in the news uh, quite a bit. In fact, uh, it originally came up in September, and and I I don't think we really covered it, but there's new evolutions to this story. Basically, um, there was a uh, a couple from St. Louis, uh, uh, Missouri, uh, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, and uh, they were, there was a viral photograph of them standing on their front lawn or their driveway, uh, brandishing weapons, pointing them at protesters that were marching past their street. And to me, that image, it really symbolized something. I wasn't really sure what it symbolized. And depending on what side of the political coin you're on, it's going to probably symbolize something different. Um, but it was a it was a powerful image of the state of politics. But photojournalism at its best, I think, to try and document right. a moment like that. Uh, and so... It turns out that um, in in September, I, I think it was uh, based on based on this tweet, uh, the couple was uh, was found using that image of themselves brandishing weapons, pointing them at protesters on what amounts to like a Christmas card. I guess a little bit early for Christmas, uh, but even signing it. Uh, and this was all done without the photographer's um, uh, permission. Uh, with, uh, Greenblatt, what was his first name? Bill, um, Bill Greenblatt. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I saw William in another place, so I wasn't sure yeah. what he prefers to be called. But Bill, let's call him Bill. He's not my friend, but... Um, so Bill Greenblatt um, uh, took the picture. Now, the interesting thing enough, he was working for United Press International, um, but that doesn't mean that they own all of the rights to his images. Uh, they might have some, but he probably, in certain contracts, uh, would maintain the copyright to them. Yeah, it depends um, on depends on the work for hire agreement, basically. Exactly, you know, whether he and, and we that. We don't know what that is, but uh, uh, Mark and Patri- uh, Patricia that were in the image, just because they're in the photograph doesn't give them the permission to actually use it. So, uh, you know, he he came up to them and, and gave them uh, an invoice, give him a bill for 1500 bucks. Uh, say, you know, th- these are, uh, you know, uh, personal injury lawyers in their 60s. I mean, um, and, and they're they're probably well enough off if they were in a private community and so on and so forth. They could have afforded to pay something for these images. Um, 
And as somebody that has had copyright settlements uh, for my work, I can say that $1,500 is a small number compared to a different type of action if you were to go through a lawyer in order to do that. Well, it turns out, well, these two are lawyers. They're personal injury lawyers. And I'm not going to say this as a blanket statement that every personal injury lawyer has filed superfluous or some seedy uh, legal cases. Not everyone. I'm sure there are a good number of them that do really good work for people that are generally injured. But if you think about the just the class of, of legal action, how they're portrayed on TV shows, it's always the personal injury lawyer that gets kicked under the bus in terms of uh, ethic morality. It's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and it's just the stereotype that persists in media and I'm mentioning that. I'm not directing it at any single individual. Um but we're talking about uh these people that are now suing uh the photographer after I'm assuming and UPI. Pay, uh, and UPI. Uh, I'm assuming after they did not pay uh the the invoice that was sent to them because the image has started to show up on merchandise on some of the, you know, uh, print-on-demand stuff, like uh, coffee mugs. T-shirts, coffee mugs, yeah. You know, uh, et cetera, with different statements, some of them probably non too, uh, you know, flattering to to these individuals. And I I don't need to go into those specifics, um, but I got into thinking, well, you know, this, obviously, they have no control over where the image ends up from a copyright standpoint. But uh, I guess the proper term isn't defamation, but... Um, uh, I found an article uh, from Lewis Rice, and uh, this is a a law firm, I'm assuming based in Missouri because they're writing about Missouri law, uh, about the right of publicity in Missouri and the twist case revisited. And we're not going to go through the entire Tony, uh, Tony twist case, which was a, uh, um, a, I believe it was a hockey player that was depicted in Todd McFarlane's spawn comic book. Correct. Uh, correct. But th- there was this whole back and forth about misrepresenting his character. And then, uh, he won in court, the appeals court, f- uh, flipped it back. The Supreme court flipped it back again. Like well, it was this. And by the way, read, I read that whole thing when you sent it to me today. And people should read it because it reinforced two things to me. One, how interpretive law is to begin with. Oh, and we are not lawyers. (laughs) But multiple times was it found in favor of McFarland before then the Supreme Court overturned it and sent it back. There was a jury verdict against McFarland. It went back and forth. And these people all studied the same law and they couldn't decide, right? And there was so many different tests that people could have applied. Yes. Uh, and, and so I think that the, the test that they were uh, using here is what they call the predominant use test. And and I'll just read a paragraph from this uh, this article that is written by Joseph E. Martineau uh, on, on uh, Lewis Rice um, that de- defines the test. If a product is being sold that predominantly exploits the commercial value of an individual's identity, that product should be held to violate the right of publicity and should not be protected by the First Amendment, even if there was some expressive content uh, in it that might qualify as speech in other circumstances. Right. However, um, if on the other hand, the predominant purpose of the product is to make an expressive comment about a celebrity the expressive values could be given greater weight. And so, um, you know, if we refer to these people as celebrities, well, the photo went viral, so I suppose well, they end okay, up in Okay, but category. here's the thing. They weren't celebrities when this started. And even in their suit, they use the phrase that the photo has contributed to their significant national recognition and infamy. So 
these were not famous people when this happened. They're famous people because this happened. I, I think the word That's celebrity is, 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 is a little bit relative there, though. I mean, a, a person of note, whether it's in the past yes. or current present, uh, based on its, <laughs> the current uses of the image. Um, but the fact that they deliberately put the image on postcards, for lack of a better word, and sent it out and then want to sue. And and, and they're suing the photographer and, uh, and, and UPI, but they, they might they're, not even be. They're also suing the company Redbubble. Which is the right, one making the making doing the, the print-on-demand yeah. stuff, and so I, I would think that if people find this on the internet and they apply their own text to it, I don't think that qualifies. Again, I'm not a lawyer as transformative artwork. I think it would be derivative, and they don't have the legal right to do it. And so, uh, you know, Redbubble then printing that stuff—that's an entirely different uh, argument uh, to get into. But let's say that they did for some reason, for whatever license, they had the ability to do it, and it was legitimate. Do they then, um, does talking bad about somebody in the text, does the the strength and the passion of your message overweigh who you're writing about from a legal standpoint of their likeness being protected by it? Well, in that article you sent me today, the, the more legal thing, not about this case, but generic you know, uh, uh, situations with Missouri law. One of the key distinctions was, is it primarily to sell a product or is it primarily to discuss somebody and it happens to sell, right? Right. And in this particular case, the image is being used in multiple ways, right? First of all, the, the photographer took this picture in a private neighborhood, right? So this couple lives in a private neighborhood behind gates, and the streets yep. are private. Now, that would generally mean, to my understanding, and I've lived in these type of, of you know, private street areas, the association, the homeowners association owns the streets, not this couple. The couple, however, is a member of the association. It gets weird there. But a, a live evolving news event happens where protesters come into these private streets does the freedom of the press play a role in the fact that even though it's private streets, he can come in because generally you can take pictures from anywhere that there's a public right of way or anything you can see from a public right of way. Does freedom of the press enable this photographer or a news personnel to follow protesters into a private building, right? Or a private area to take pictures. And even if, he didn't have the rights to be there and take the pictures. Let's just, let's play devil's advocate. Should never have been there. Should never have gone onto private streets and taking pictures on private streets of a couple and then using them for anything isn't legal because it's not public right away. Then the question begs to be asked. He still owns copyright. Well, so they yeah, still you violated trespass. copyright. No yeah. matter. If you he wasn't trespassing, get fined, you know, what, $75 for trespassing, whatever it is in your right, jurisdiction. Right, but they still and, used his copyright for cards. They still owe him. Exactly. And, you know, to, to use a great example, uh, historically, Tank Man. Uh, great photojournalism example. And it's not just one pho a photographer that took this picture. Uh, it later turned out that there was multiple photographers at slightly different angles that were taking this image of this man blocking tanks heading towards Tiananmen Square. And... Uh, 
th those images were forbidden to be taken, yet they are so powerful and meaningful for photojournalism. I don't think that the same necessary rules apply uh, from, like, they, they were in, a, like, locked in their hotel rooms. They were hiding film canisters in toilets. Uh, and, like, I don't want to draw a complete parallel to that, but I just want to say that there are exemptions to the rules. And when you have this mob right. going down the street, um, you're going to follow that, even if that mob is not exactly in, in, in public grounds in order to like, let, let's say they were uh, collecting together in a field and the field was owned by a farmer. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's a private territory. It's a private place, but it's still, it kind of evolves to be something a little bit different in that context, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the photographer, regardless will always own the copyright to those images, whether or not the image was legally obtained uh, in terms of Correct. trespassing and, and other, uh, uh, you know, bits of minutia towards the law. But to another point, uh, the media talking about this image is totally fair game. Like we're talking about right now. We are discussing this. Uh, we are discussing it. It is going to be the title image for this episode because that is fair use. Um, that is fair dealing as, as well. And, and, and maybe that, uh, that couple in St. Louis don't want me to be doing that and to be discussing this, but it is a newsworthy item. Correct. And I am not violating the photographer's copyright and I am not hurting the likeness of this couple by discussing a newsworthy story in that process. No, I completely agree. I, I mean, there's, it, what's interesting is if I were a lawyer, this would be a really fascinating case because oh, yeah. when you get into, you've got a freedom of the press. Uh, part here. You've got a access to private property right here. You've got defining whether or not it is transformative or straight commercial use to use this picture when you put text on with it. You've got UPI threatening to send a cease and desist letter. First of all, he sent them an invoice. They sued all the people. UPI is considering a cease and desist to stop the couple from using it as a greeting card. <laughs> this is like this is law school gold. Oh, it, I, I think that the, this might set some precedents um, uh, based on that. But again, we're not lawyers, but Steve, we're going to be watching this case and we're going to uh, talk about however that gets resolved on a future episode of Photo Geek Weekly. But uh, I, I do want to add one thing because there is something in their lawsuit that did strike me. In their lawsuit, they say a couple things. First of all, they allege that the three defendants, uh, you know, Greenblatt, UPI, and Redbubble, are profiting from T-shirts, masks, and other items and licensing use of photographs bearing the place plaintiff's likenesses without obtaining cons uh, consent. But then they go on to say, the merchandise has a mocking and pejorative taglines and captions causing them humiliation, mental anguish, and severe emotional distress. That's where that whole, uh, you know, right of publicity thing, I exactly. think, kind of applies. Right? That's a big deal here. So it's going to be interesting. All right. Um, so, and, and Gary says, add to the list of usages uh, of the photo in other countries where the rules are different. Well, that is literally every country. Uh, yes, there are certain conditions and treaties like the, the Berne Convention that uh, right. allows certain countries to respect uh, other countries' copyright laws, but let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. <laughs> Guess that, yeah, we'd be there uh, for a while. We'd be there for a while. Let's instead move on to our next story, which is- You should uh, mention what the link you posted. Oh, yeah, I, I did uh, just uh, in, in the chat. I posted the link to the snowflake photo uh, on WeTransfer, and uh, I'll also put that in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. So everybody take a look. Um, and uh, so step aside Intel. Uh, this is from DP Review. Uh, 
Apple shows off its first Macs powered by its new M1 chipset. Uh, and in, in this regard, um, you know, Apple's doing something really, really bold because we have, uh, uh, we have a legacy of PowerPC uh, that then transitioned to Intel's x86 processors, and they had to redo their entire suite of software to do that. And Apple was always using a, a third-party supplier for their chips, uh, originally uh, IBM and then Intel. And, uh, and now, um, much like they've done with their phones, they realized, hey, we're just going to make our own chip. Uh, and it's going to be ARM-based, and it's going to be great. And they learned a lot from the chips that they were making for the iPods, iPads, and iPhones. And, well, if they've got that and a solid, solid ecosystem, why can't they make an ARM-based chip themselves, redesign their entire operating system? Uh, yes, of course, they've got their Rosetta 2, uh, you know, uh, to translate some of the older code and what have you, uh, to make sure that the transition period is solid. But why can't they do it again and be in control of their own fortune uh, with a new processor, uh, not, not a new architecture, but something that they themselves have all of the control over, Steve? Yeah, I, okay, so there's a couple things here. First of all, you know, there were chips before PowerPC, then they went to PowerPC, then they went to Intel. Strikingly, the the switch from PowerPC to Intel, uh, they said it was going to be a couple of years. They did it way faster than they had predicted. It went very smooth. Rosetta worked really well. Now we have Rosetta 2. But here's the thing. First of all, these are not technically ARM chips. It, they've licensed ARM technology, but they've rolled their own system on a chip. And that, yeah. to me, is is where is where the aha moment is. It's not that they're moving computing in the in the in the mobile or laptop portable and desktop space to arm instruction sets. It's that they've built a system on a chip in these type of computers that is like nothing we've ever had in those computers before and it's built on even though this is gen 1, let's be aware here. They started the iPhone 2007. They have been making their own Apple series silicon for their mobile devices, iPads and iPhones for 10 years. They've been doing this, right? And I remember about two years ago when they released, I think at the time it might've been the, the A12 chip and everybody kind of went, something's not right here. The chip that is in this iPad at the time this is ridiculously powerful oh, yeah. for an iPad. Why on earth is there such a powerful chip running this iPad? Well, you can kind of see now where they they knew back then. And one of the keys about these chips to me is <clears throat> they are kind of everything, you know, everybody has, other people have tried going ARM, right? We had We had Windows on ARM. And it was a drastic failure as far as performance. But because Apple is building these optimized for their systems. They're building and, the chips and the operating system. And the they, operating they, they system. And they don't really a, have to redo OS X a lot because effectively iOS, iPad OS, and Apple TV OS, those are all basically versions of OS X already. 
they have the same code base, right? And and they've been working to translate that OS, uh, OSX into these platforms. And so that, I think, makes uh, the transition a lot easier to get from, uh, you know, the PowerPC to Intel days. Where, where there, there was no bridge. They yep. had to construct it as they were going. And I guess you were right. Originally, they were using Motorola chips before IBM. Yep. But uh, so they're not. Uh, this is not an unknown to them. Um, but I think really uh, the, the the true thing about this is is they can take all the processing power and the engineering that they've put into their mobile platforms, make a chip with a bigger footprint, and continue to evolve that um, that power to performance. Uh, it's, it's almost legendary now what what these uh, phones and tablets are capable of producing. So that. I've looked at the numbers, and yeah, they're they're advertising numbers right now. Um, but and I heard people talking on various different podcasts. But it's a three and a half faster processor, five times faster graphics, um, and nine times faster machine learning. Always up to and and so on. Uh, and, and all th- those are big numbers. It's they're not- big numbers. But did you watch? Like for example, I watched MKBHD, uh, mm-hmm. Marquez Brownlee, who literally said. I pulled this thing out of the box. I charged it to hundred percent and I've been using it for a week without charging it again. And some of the numbers that I'm seeing. So first of all, we should back up and we should say, this is not a processor that we're talking about. The M1 is not a processor. It's It's an SOC. It's a system on a chip. So on this one, what used to require IO controllers and GPUs and CPUs and processors and, and neural engine chips and image signal processing chips, these are all now... Neuro, you know, machine learning, it's all in there. And, and one of the keys to this is they've gone to, which has been done before, unified memory architecture. The memory is on the chip. So during processing, instruction sets A don't need to go across a motherboard bus to get to RAM. Well, the, the RAM is not in the the main chip. It's still a separate chip for the memory. It just, it has a direct connection to the main chip, I believe, right? My understanding is the unified memory, and if you look at the schematics, the, the memory is in the chip. I, In fact, one of the things they're touting is because of that, all processes can access memory without having to worry about accessing different addresses. That That's interesting, uh, especially because I know the physical size of memory chips to get a meaningfully sized amount of memory, like 32 gigabytes or whatever, the capacity of those chips just hasn't shrunk down small enough to fit inside the footprint of a pre-existing chip die. And if it did, well, then you run into the issue of uh, of binning the product because the, the memory is usually made on a smaller manufacturing process, typically. Uh, there's a lot of five nanometer memory, but seven nanometer computer processors. Um, and uh, you have, let's say you're using, I don't know, 16 memory chips in a system, but the, the failure rate uh, is twenty percent on on those chips, and you throw away the twenty percent that don't uh, right. uh, don't pass muster. But if you're throwing sixteen of them into one die, then your failure rate uh, of of manufacturing that would go up considerably, having Perhaps, that many transistors I, on I one think, piece. I think you're speculating there, and one of the I am one. Of, well, yeah, I mean that's I mean I guess that's all we're doing. Like Terrell just mentioned the fact that the max you can get is 16 gig, but everything that I've seen in reviews from Renee Ritchie to Marquez Brownlee to everybody, and Marquez Brownlee had a great line in his video, and that is, I'm trying to remember the exact wording, I'm going to screw it up, but you know we have to readjust our or, or realign our viewpoint. 
because it's not 16 gigabytes like we think of 16 gigabytes. Everything can happen so fast because of the UMA architecture that you don't need to be running across a motherboard and there's less latency. And so everybody that's running these that I've known, there's two things I've seen. First of all, some of the benchmarks, now granted when you're using disk measuring benchmarks, like the top apps that are out there, um, that's not real world, okay? But it's a baseline that we go off of and everybody does. In baselines, both single and multi-core, these things outperform in certain cases every single Intel Mac, including i9s that are out there. Yep. And then in real world stuff, many people, one guy did a thing where on his phone, he rendered 4K HDR video faster on his phone than on an Intel Mac to extrapolate that that would mean something in, in an M1. But everything I'm seeing is native apps, Final Cut Pro, any Apple app, right? Uh, native apps are pronouncedly faster, like cut in half. And w- somebody posted they were using Adobe Premiere, doing stuff in Adobe Premiere, and it ran at virtually the identical speed to being native on Intel. And it's not native yet. It's running under Rosetta 2. These so I'm, are I'm gonna, huge things. Th- it is very huge. And I want to go back to 1994 for a minute, because that is when Intel released uh, the Pentium Pro. And so I'm holding up a Pentium Pro processor right here because it was on my desk. And yes, I have all sorts of unusual things on my desk. Um, As Don would. The Pentium Pro chip, um, this particular variant had one megabyte of on-package cache. It had a processor here, uh, and then it had a cache module here and a second cache module below it. It had three chips within the exact same package. And... That was revolutionary. Previously, the, the cache would either have to be like a an L2 cache, which sometimes was external, or it had to be very small on board. But this cache on these chips, having a megabyte of cache, made it perfect for the server environment and so many other things. And that was a separate memory chip on the same package with a direct communication line within this thing. Right. Um, I suspect uh, Apple might be doing something similar. I, I suspect it that- It could be. Uh, that they they have their main processor, but then they have their RAM as like a direct communication sort of buddied up. But it's uh, still in the same chip is my point. It's still in the system on a chip. It's not separate chips. I suppose so. If you can call this a chip, but really there's three distinct pieces of silicon inside. Yes, Uh, yes. And I'm referring referring to, it's not somewhere else on the motherboard soldered in independently is my point. Sure. Sure. Uh, and, and Gary comes in and I, I was actually going to make this point, Gary. Uh, I think that the uh, amazement of Apple's performance is more of a direct indictment of the failure of Intel. Ignoring Apple's uh, 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 Apple optimization, Intel should uh, have something competitive, but aren't even close. Well, I went right back to 1994. Uh, Intel's done this tech before. It's not new for them to, to bundle this stuff together in order to eke out every bit of performance. Um in fact, they never even sold these chips retail. They were only to server vendors uh, because of of the expense of them. It's it's ridiculously yeah, but, expensive but to dude, do that. They can't even get to five nanometers now, and these are five nanometer processors. They are so far behind. And they and and yeah. let me add, they've tried and literally failed at five nanometers. So you know, the, they are the perf- so far behind. And you've got machines here. By the way, there were three machines, right? It was the MacBook Air. M1, the MacBook Pro 13-inch with M1, 
and the MacBook, uh, I'm sorry, the Mac mini with an M1. And the MacBook Air doesn't even have a fan. Yeah, that's impressive. It's silent. And they do see throttling in that machine. All the tests have shown that it starts to throttle at about 10 minutes of just slamming the processor. Well, for a MacBook Air to be able to just go full bore for 10 minutes without a fan before throttling is huge. Oh, yeah, because that's where the bulk of any major processing load is going to be in a couple of minutes of time before it levels out. Now, the, the real point of discussion that matters to me is I've I've always been uh, a PC user. I mean, I've bounced back and forth between iPhones and Android and, and what have you, but right. I've always been a PC user. And the performance delta has always been about the same because the processors have been roughly the same. Right. And yes, the, it's a cat and mouse game. I, I get that. And we're not going to get into the minutia there. But this is like oodles better uh, in terms of the, the raw performance factor. And if it's just a preference of uh, your user interface and your operating system uh, and you've got all the apps in either location, like if I'm using the Adobe suite, it, the experience doesn't really change uh, regardless right. of what platform that I'm on. But if the performance is ridiculous, then uh, for like the same price yeah. or even paying a premium, but having something in a compact format that could win me over as a content creator, especially now that I'm shooting a lot of 5.9 K raw video, which is really intensive processing. Well, and, and you've got, again, if you're a final cut, if you move to final cut, it's native and screaming. And if you, even if you're using premiere under Rosetta, it may work for you, but when they come out with, they've said, for example, the, the Adobe suite, Lightroom CC will come out in about a month. Lightroom Classic, Photoshop, things like that, probably next year. That's still but a still, fast transition, though. Within a year to have native software on this thing from so many apps. Uh, but but uh, here's the side benefit, too, Steve. Um, what if, because this is now uh, based on the ARM architecture and it's based on all of this new stuff, but for, from the software vendor's perspective, they're, they're just making it for ARM. And, and yes, Apple has their own connection connectivity and what have you. But that means that you could theoretically run the full version of Photoshop on an iPad, uh, on iOS, rather yes. than having their separate version of it that we currently have in a semi-crippled form. Yeah. And and by the way, the other there are some other really compelling things in this hardware. Uh, you know, for the prices, the, the MacBook Air starts at uh, $999, goes to $2050, the Mac Mini starts at six ninety nine, goes to sixteen hundred. The MacBook Pro thirteen hundred goes to twenty three hundred, but they uh, support P three color space. The MacBook Pro and the MacBook Mini both support driving the Apple XDR display at full six K resolution, faster machine learning. They all include Wi Fi six eight hundred two eleven eight X. There is some, for example, the MacBook Air, and I'm guessing it's the same with the Pro, although I didn't see it in the specs. Two time faster SSDs because it's completely different structure. Yeah, bottom line to me is uh, and crazy battery life. These these are beasts of machines that are going to be exciting to see what Apple's doing. I think this is one of the most in intriguing innovations we've seen since you and I have been following tech. I, I believe so. Uh, and this is going to make or break companies like Intel and AMD. Now, AMD has been taking uh, Intel's lunch in the last little while, but Apple is going to take everybody's lunch. And uh, the classic x86 architecture, I think, is going to be transitioned away from. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, and, and to make that prediction, I, I have no stock involved, although I have been considering uh, buying stock in ARM. 
because uh, they have to they, they get a they get paid a licensing fee every time the ARM uh, core architecture is used in a chip. And if we are transitioning away from x86 on mass, then that might be my stock tip advice for you right now. And and what I understand is they're not they're not using ARM architecture. They're building their own architecture. They're licensing ARM instruction sets. That's right. And so this so is this is not an ARM chip. This is a hundred percent an Apple chip, but using certain structures. Exactly. All right, uh, let's move on to our next story uh, because I think we've talked that one as far as we can right now. Uh, but this one I think is going to be a fun one. And uh, uh, it's from F-Stoppers, gift ideas for film photographers at every price point. But honestly, I want to just say gift ideas for photographers and just discuss holidays are coming up. You probably have a photographer in your life if you're not going to buy something for yourself. Um, and... Uh, what would you recommend as a gift? I mean, yeah, under $25, they, they recommend film. Uh, you know, you can get all sorts of different camera bags and, uh, and tripods or, you know, different scanning options for the film stuff. But I don't want to get into the minutiae necessarily about this article. Um, but I want to ask you, Steve, uh, what you uh, would recommend people get or give as a, uh, as a gift this year. Okay, so let me just say, I know that you're asking that because you're intending to get me a holiday gift, and that's okay. <laughs> um, I feel uncomfortable giving you ideas for what to buy me. I would think that as long as we've known each other, that you would know and be able to buy me a gift without me me telegraphing it, but if I must. Um, so for me, here's the thing, and, and, I've, and my pick of the week kind of relates to this this week. There are certain things I think that photographers always want, even if they have them, right? So one of those is light. We may have flashes, but we want a studio strobe, or we may have studio strobes, but we want more mobile stuff like speed lights, or we may want constant lights for certain in, in, uh, scenarios. We may, we may want RGB. So I could recommend versus, everybody a flashlight. I can tell you that. Yeah, we may <laughs> want a flashlight, like some of the special flashlights that you use. Um, there's so many things. So for me, when you start looking at Godox for flashes nowadays and a bunch of other companies, or if you want constant light aperture or nan light, uh, these blue lights are going to be my pick of the week. Uh, and I just got those, uh, nan light is something our buddy photo Joseph uses. And I found B and H deal zone had a light last week, like $200 off for like 180 bucks or 160 bucks. And it's basically a nan light by the parent company. I bought that. Books are always a great idea, like the yes. Uncommon Grit Stealing one my or your book coming up. Um, but then I started looking around going, what would people want that they wouldn't think of? People think about stuff like that, but they don't think about just light modifiers. Maybe a softbox. Yeah. Maybe an umbrella, a big umbrella. Maybe a 50-inch. I don't know. Extension tubes. When I was doing your class for Princeton Photo Workshops, I kept going, God, if only I had extension tubes, right? And and we will be redoing a, a macro photography four-week course with Princeton Photo Workshop, if I can uh, sneak in a little plug for that, uh, oh. which has critique sessions at the beginning of uh, everything but the, the first session, obviously, um, and just totally going down the rabbit hole. So one of my picks to that end is- Let me add one last one, smart home stuff. Plugs and bulbs, et cetera. Oh, yes. Uh, we, we've got a bunch of Nest stuff in here, and we absolutely love it. Um, but I, I was going to say, get somebody education. 
you know, in, enroll them in a workshop in something that they're passionate about. Maybe ask them who their favorite photographer is. And if they're still living, they might be doing a workshop right now and just kind of, um, you know, try to work in that angle because that might not be something that they would know to buy for themselves. And uh, so photo workshops, I think is an exceptional thing, uh, potentially a member to your local camera club, uh, a membership, uh, which, you know, for clubs around here, the cost is anywhere between 20 and a hundred dollars for a year. Usually around the $50 price point is where things stand. And I think that makes a nice gift, especially if somebody's not a member of the club, but have an interest in photography. Um, I also have a pick as my pick of the week, which I think will be exceptional for this. So I'm trying to avoid talking about that. That's what I tried to uh, do too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm uh, going to, I'm going to, I'm going to echo what you said about workshops because you introduced me to the people you do your macro classes through with Princeton photo workshops. And so I'm actually now like Freddie Clark or another mutual friend of ours is doing, uh, I've got a workshop with them coming up next April. So I, I think online in this, in this environment that we're in, right. Yeah. Online stuff is huge. It is. And and I want to state that, you know, I've had people in my workshops that have come uh, from like in person from New Zealand. Uh, it's far easier for people to come to a workshop from their living room from New Zealand or from you know, the UK or wherever else. Um, and so uh, we, we try to accommodate, uh, you know, some of the timing for that. But it becomes a global experience at that point. And, and I think that we can all kind of up our game, not necessarily with more gear, uh, but with more experiences. And I think 2020 has been, uh, you know, a, a year of trying to grow ourselves personally in any way that we can, especially that we're stuck at home and some of those options are valuable. I know I, I get booked to do a lot of camera club presentations virtually right now. Um, and so you want to- I just got get- an email for somebody asked me to do it for three photo clubs in Texas uh, coming up that I'm going to answer after this. Did you see the two comments of suggestions? Uh, no. Uh, uh, what, what do we have? Uh, Vladislav. I, I'm going to mispronounce it. I apologize. For Christmas, 8 to 800 millimeter F14 IS TCI four-time macro. Yeah. All of them, right? Everything. Yes. Vladislav, then, that's- uh, uh, <laughs> What did Gary say? Gary said, gift certificate to a print house. Yeah, that's a great idea too, Gary. Good one. It, uh, you know, a lot of people, I was going to think gift certificates, but I don't, I don't want to get a gift certificate to buy my own gear, you know? And yes, I know that's usually a cop out, but if you get a gift certificate to a print house, then you're going to get prints on the wall and, uh, or you know, somebody for the gonna, printer that you already own. Well, exactly. Or an interesting type of paper for that printer that you haven't Ooh, printed on. Yes. Um, and, uh, I, I've been really liking the, um, Hanamule photo reg metallic uh, as a paper. And, uh, I had bought it when they had sample rolls available and it was really inexpensive. I don't know if those sample rolls are still on because I think it might've just been a launch thing, but I have been printing the majority of my stuff on that paper and I'll have to bite the bullet and, uh, and buy a full proper, uh, proper length roll in the future because I've used through almost all of it. And um, for me, I, I've fallen in love with Beretta. Um, I have some of the Red River paper, Beretta paper here, and Red River's absolutely well. love it. So that's that's a good one. Uh, Terrell said rigging equipment, bags, lights, stuff oh, like crab that. clamps, crab. Just b- oh. buy b- buy a photographer yes. a bag of crab clamps. They will yeah. use every single one of them <laughs> at yeah. some point or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, I completely agree. There's there's so many options that you can go with. The the thing I the thing I think is good in this time is COVID has made us think differently about it, right? We don't think about things that have to be physical. Yeah. They can be online. They can be training. Kelby one, Flurn, Princeton photo workshops. Um, 
there's just so many options. Bo- again, books. I'm I'm falling in love with photo books. I've got Rick Salmon sitting over here. I've got that one there, and yours is going to be coming. So, yeah, just there's so many options. And uh, and I'll say you know uh, one more thing. Uh, if you know somebody that has. I think most photographers have at least one film camera. Usually it's just sitting on a shelf, kind of collecting dust. It's it's become an ornament. Take it off the shelf. Put it in a box for them with a roll of film that has a uh, development send-back kit. Uh, I know that Kodak does this with their uh, Extrachrome now, uh, where you can get it from B&H, where you've got the whole like sort of development mailer that gets sent back to, I'm assuming then Kodak, uh, or whoever, whoever they've outsourced that to. Uh, and uh, then it gives them the impetus to kind of rediscover that old thing that yep. absolutely no cost. They don't have to go and buy chemicals or even go and try to find a, a photo lab right now because it's all encased within that. And there's a sense of nostalgia. You're giving somebody a new memory with an old tool. Yeah, I agree. Or or last idea, because I know we got to move on, but I, I don't want to leave this one out. Tesla. <laughs> you want to buy somebody uh, a new car or a, a new power wall? Oh, no, I you... thought I was dropping ideas for me. I, I oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, I will buy you a DIY Tesla coil kit. Steve. A little matchbox Tesla. Yeah. No, no, a Tesla coil. You know, make light. Tesla coil. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So there we go. Uh, some gift ideas for our fellow photographers or for ourselves. And heck, even just to add one more, because I'm thinking about it, and I ended up buying one for myself recently, is a wired shutter release, which I realized I oh, didn't have one. for my uh, Lumix S series camera bodies. And, and not everybody gets a wired release, but it's so useful to lock down the shutter for uh, astrophotography and star trails yep. and that type of thing. Uh, or even just when you're doing in-studio shooting to not be touching the camera. There's a lot of uses for them. They don't have to be very expensive. Kind of a stocking stuffer thought. Yeah, there. I agree. Now, a camera that will not be a stocking stuffer. Yeah, I don't think um, not. <laughs> Uh, so from Petapixel, this camera was used for aerial photos during World War II. And I just, I saw this and I thought immediately to myself, I, I want that. I, when I first I, saw this, <laughs> when, when, you, when I, at first I read the title, I went, oh, this would be cool. And I scrolled down and I looked at this picture right here and I thought, okay, this is the onion. Yeah, this, this is this is not Petapixel. This is comedy news here. Um, but no, if, if you, uh, th- this had a two foot long 610 millimeter f6 lens yeah but but it was designed to shoot on nine inch by nine inch film and so and that that's shot on nine and a half inch wide roll film and i i mean i'm familiar with film era stuff Uh, i didn't know that they made roll film at that size it was probably a special order item um this is commonly misclassified as the kodak k24 camera it is in fact the fairchild k17 uh and so i i even pulled that up on the the camera wiki uh just to see a a better image of uh, like a, a more modern image of this thing and oh my god that thing is yeah you know and three I, there I, were three I, lenses by the way yeah you could six got, inch at six three f six three 12 inch at f5 and a 24 inch 24 inch at f6 I, and i'm actually having to plug this in to see what well, 24 inches is in millimeters uh and that's uh that's the uh 600 and something it's it's two, feet, yeah, two feet two um, feet and so that that that's what it boils down to and that's uh that that's remarkable um 
I can't imagine how much it costs to manufacture one of these things. They but, made in the 90, 1940s. I'm guessing expensive. Yeah. Did you look uh, at the weight? Uh, how much does it weigh, Steve? Okay. So just the film magazine with a 200-foot roll, roll of film, 30 pounds. When you do the film, a 12-inch lens in the camera, it's 55 pounds. And as you saw, let me scroll back up there. As you saw in this photo with a two-foot lens, I think that's the two-foot lens, with a two-foot lens, 24-inch lens, film, and the camera, 75 pounds. And I don't know if you noticed it, Don, but at the very bottom of the article, there is an update from today. Oh, I didn't see. What's that say? Here's Uh, a look at the kind of photos that were captured. Oh, with these massive aerial cameras. So let me throw I, I, this bad boy on. Yeah, I, I Shot know that- from a B-24 Bombay in World War II. I, I know that some of these cameras, not this one specifically, but a little bit later in the war, 1945, were even adapted for night photography, um, where they would- uh, uh, they would uh, bomb uh, where they put flash bombs down. Like they would, the bombs would be flashes for the cameras light. Right. Um, and I don't think they did that with this camera, but man, these images are just stunning. Uh, the one with I, the bo- I, there's multiple bombs falling. Yeah. Uh, I've got that one. Look at this. Right and that's a, like against a floor. If you scroll down that article, yeah, you there's find a one. shag carpet rug there. Yeah. What the heck? Um, now, and I, and I say that this is wonderful and magnificent. I don't mean that that this image had to be it was created uh, in a war effort, and I don't wish war on the world in any way. But um, it definitely depicts it in a way that I have never seen before, and and maybe I just wasn't looking for it. But to see the camera and to see what wow. it was capturing and that world and that atmosphere, um, I I have great respect to the engineers that created it, uh, the the governments that purchased it. And the operators that used it. These pictures are scary good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it is shocking what some of these are. And and actually at the top of this, I saw, you know, I had it there at the beginning. There was one where they were photographing side by side, photographing another plane. Yeah. Um, And and I I look at these kinds of images and that obviously would have been a a handheld uh, shot with this thing, but, um, or maybe it's just a photo of, uh, of the bomber that might have been loading the camera into it. Um, But the the thing is, Steve, you you look at these images, people had to push the absolute limits of technology, not just uh, with weaponry, uh, tactics, surveillance, which this would be a part of, but photography was advanced by the war effort. And yeah, we didn't really make cameras this big after that, but I'm sure there were a lot of things that were patent worthy that came out of these designs. And obviously, as Gary says, yeah, definitely a camera made for the armed forces. Um, but because the film is so big, I'm actually not noticing any grain at all in, in any of these because they're just massive, massive no, cameras. It's just, am- uh, it's, they're just amazing. And Terrell said the only dude in the world who could hold that camera is in the picture and he's hand holding a one tenth of a second shot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he's a burly, uh, burly gentleman in, in that photo, which he's got his knee a- up holding it. Yeah, if, if you want to take a look at that and uh, the resulting images, you can take a look at that um, at uh, photogeekweekly.com, which is where all of the show notes are for these episodes. But before we get into our picks of the week, Steve, uh, where can people find you online? We teased it at the beginning, but hit people again. Okay, so a couple of different places. First of all, of course, if you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, I've kind of abandoned Facebook right now. 
the accounts are still there. I just don't monitor them at all. So uh, Facebook or Twitter, it's at Steve Brazel, uh, same as the country Brazil, but two L's or at behind the shot TV for the podcast. You can find me at Steve for my portfolio behind the shot TV for the behind the shot TV for the actual behind the shot podcast. And then I just want to reiterate that I do have a class coming up. I forgot to mention this, by the way, during the, uh, during the critique show that we just did, I should have done that. Uh, I actually have a class that we've just finished getting set up at Princeton Photo Workshops, and it's on the <clears throat> challenges of low light action photography. And basically, it's going to be me using my music shots and some of my uh, fight sports shots to talk about live event photography and low light, how you get into these events, how you photograph them, that type of a thing, focusing on really how to get better low light action photos. Um, that's pretty much it. And then of course on photo geek weekly now and then, which I love. Yeah. And, and it's great having you here. It is a joy to have you as a part of this discussion, Steve. Uh, thank you for being a part of it uh, so often, uh, in the chat. Um, Vincenzo asks, uh, how can I buy your book? Well, I'm putting a link in the chat at skycrystals.ca where you can find that. Uh, and, uh, I've got my files in date coming up within about two weeks to the press, uh, and it's looking good and everything is coming together quite nicely cool. for that. So, uh, expect that soon. I don't have a, a press schedule date yet, uh, cause that's going to be coming one once, um, uh, once I have the files in and we've done the, the full press checks, but we're partly through that process right now. Uh, and they haven't come up with any, uh, glaring, uh, defects in the files that I'm presenting to them. Um, so let's get into our picks of the week then. Okay. And, uh, you were just changing the lighting on yours and you caught my attention. Making sure that. it worked before I talked. All right. So, uh, <laughs> you, you start us off. Okay. So. My pick of the week are the lights that I have up above me. So in the middle of my ceiling, I have your normal, you know, like ceiling light um, that has two bulbs in it. And I have hue bulbs in there. And periodically, I've changed the color on those. The problem is I'm bald. And when I do that, I get this, you know, blue swash like mohawk across my head. So then I have to put something up there to flag it. So it doesn't just pain in the butt. So instead, what I did was I bought two of these lights I'm going to mention and I mounted a platypod, the smaller platypod to the light, two goosenecks coming down, attach these lights. I can separate them and aim them, one at that wall and one at this wall. And I can remote control them using an app. That's fantastic. And what these are is Aperture MC RGB WWW lights. They're about $90 on B&H right now, $99 on Amazon. Um, but what's really cool, there's a couple of things that are really cool on these. So if you look at the back of these, these actually have these little two silver rings that you see. Those are magnets. So these lights will magnet to anything that you need and just stick there. Plus, they have a quarter 20 on the bottom, which I think is uh, shown in one of these. I don't know. But in this picture, you can kind of see the Which is a standard tripod little, mount, right? Yeah, the standard tripod people. mount on the yeah. bottom, which is how they're mounted to the, to the goosenecks. There's a little LCD screen on the top, and you can go into many different modes, including effects, or you can just choose between 3200 and 6500 uh, 6, Kelvin. You can go full RGB, including changing the hue, the saturation, and the brightness on those. Here's what's really cool. They're Qi chargeable. They have a USB-C charger, but they are also Qi chargeable. So I have a wireless charger when I'm done cool. with this show. I'll pull one down, set it on the Qi charger and charge it up. But they last at max brightness two hours. And to give you an idea right now, 
These things are running at 35 brightness. This is full. Yeah, you, you oh, I got to jump back bit. to me. Sorry about that. Uh, Let me jump back. To I, me. I, I'm seeing you, Steve. That 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 brightness, that full brightness is. Uh, yeah, I had it on the website, so that's full. <laughs> as opposed to here's a preset. This is 35, and you'll see it darkened down. But it's full RGB, so I can go red. I can go green if I want to. I can adjust them independently if I want to. Uh, all from the phone, and they're they're just absolutely awesome on what you can do for these. And again, you know, 90 bucks. They're so awesome. And you are using a part of my pick in order to, uh, to, to make that work. The, uh, the, the platypod and the gooseneck arms, which, uh, somebody tipped me off that last year, I, I think I had recommended, um, the, uh, the platypod, um, max macro bundle. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. it had a platypod max, two goosenecks, uh, two Lytra torches. Uh, and it was a great deal for that. And in fact, by the way, it's what I was using, um, to, to do the setup, uh, today of, um, uh, of my little snowflake. Shoot. See, that's the max that, that that's I the have max. an ultra up here, right? Which is part of the reason I love platypod is because the size, each size comes in very handy. Right. And so, yeah, I have a cra- crab clamp on one that's holding the uh, the snowflake crab clamps. Every photographer could want them. Uh, and I've got a lighter torch on another one. But um, the uh, the new Macro Max bundle that they've put out there is uh, it includes the, the, the Platypod Max, four gooseneck arms, the two Lytra torches, uh, which, I mean, as a macro light, that's phenomenal. You you, you could use more than that, sure. Uh, you could use flashlights and other things, but this is, uh, and they've got diffusers on them. Uh, so for a small-scale photo studio, that's all you'd need. But they've also included a Platypod Ultra, a second set of gooseneck arms, so now instead of two, you have four, uh, and the accessory kit uh, that has some extra goodies and stuff in there as well, all for the same price as the bundle from last year. And this is their Black Friday sale. I don't know how long this will last, um, uh, especially at this price, because they're just loading in a lot of extra stuff without charging more for it. So don't expect it to stick around for too long. Um, but uh, it's $279 uh, for yeah. an entire macro lighting and staging set, because you could put two gooseneck arms with the, uh, the Lytra torches on... Uh, on uh, the, the the max, but then you could put another one on the ultra, which they, they don't have the crab clamps and stuff like that, uh, or third hand or helping hand tools. But those are really easy to add to a kit like this right. uh, for a couple of bucks, really, to help position and control where your subjects are. Um, I find myself going more to this as a photo studio, uh, sort of in a box uh, for macro work than I do any other configuration anymore. So uh, at that price, it's hard to beat it. In fact, you can't beat it. I, I'd, I'd say go ahead. And that's why I was kind of saying, if you've got a photographer or even yourself um, and you want to explore this stuff, it is so very capable and so less expensive than it should be. So take advantage. And and let me do this because I've got the picture up right now. And some people say to me, what's the, what's the strap for? If you look at either one of the platypods, the Max or the Ultra, there's grooves in it. And that strap is you can run it through that and wrap it around a pole or wrap it around a tree and Velcro it tight. Yep. Um, plus, you got the, the the riser poles actually are really handy. And then the Lytra torches are, I just got two of those and I absolutely freaking love them. 
I believe that, uh, and I have to double check that uh, you can use them to light your face for like web conferences and stuff. Uh, they will die fairly quickly uh, because they just have a fairly small battery in them and they're so intense. But I think you can plug them in and use them while they're plugged in uh, yes, in order to, yeah, uh, in order to, to make that a lot and longer. They ha- they're magnets too. Just like my oh, yeah, apertures. there's magnets all over them. There's magnets all over them, and they mount, and they even give you little sticky metal, uh, like pads that you can stick to a wall to stick these lights on. Um, there's just some really cool stuff here, and they come with the diffusers, which the the competitor doesn't. And they're waterproof, and they're waterproof to like thirty feet or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, just awesome, awesome, awesome. So uh, a, a good deal there, and uh, thank you for your tip too, Steve. I could maybe kind of change up the lighting in in this space as well with a very similar configuration. Not that yeah, I need it's to. It's nice. Uh, it just, it's a little back. You know, if I had a studio where I had, you know, like a straight wall behind me and artwork, like a lot of YouTubers and stuff do, that'd be great. But this is my office and I display my stuff that I like, my telescope, my printer, my the books that I have, and it's busy. So just changing the color kind of gives some separation. Yeah. And uh, and so thank you for that. Uh, and thank you for being here and making this live. Oh, uh, Terrell says basically that this is really tight and, and what's there to edit. Well, Terrell, you might not realize this. I never edit the show. Um, this show is never edited unless I have to bleep a swear word or there's a technical break. Um, right. This is bookended with the music. Well, I mean, you do do audio it. processing. Yeah, sure. It. Yeah, I, I run it through, uh, you know, just something to adjust the levels on it. But but it's not I don't go and start chopping it up. This is just as you see right. it, as it always is. And I really appreciate everybody tuning in live today. It's been a pleasure. I think we'll do this again at some point, maybe not right away. Uh, but uh, I think that we've we've learned a couple of things here. And I think we'll have fun for the next time. So Steve, thank you very much for facilitating that. Thank you to everybody that was live, everybody that's listening after the fact. With all that we've said and rambled on about, it's time to stay in and shoot. 